1: York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers and this is the Taylor Stevens show with my good friend Steve Campbell where we are kicking riding in the butt one word at a time.
0: Taylor a couple weeks ago we were talking about a new incubator that you had and some some eggs that you were putting through this new incubation process and I forgot to ask you about it the last (laughs) time we recorded what whatever came (laughs) of all that?
1: Okay so it's Technically not a new incubator. It's just one that I've had put up for so long. I haven't used it in a long time. And way back when we chatted about this, uh, I was like, oh, my God, one of the geese, Georgia, started laying eggs. And I have no idea if they're fertile, but I'm going to stick some in an incubator and just see what happens. And, uh, I've, I've hatched a lot of chicks and turkeys and guineas and whatever, but I've never done waterfowl and I've just wanted to do it for so long. I'm so excited. It's very addicting. (laughs) And, and so I stuck them in and out of that first, I think it was like 11 eggs, like three of them were good. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And then she kept laying and like right after I stuck those in like a week after i had more eggs so i put more in and two of those were good so like i have five that are just cooking away and then she kept laying and then one of the other geese started laying and i it took me a while to suss out who it was and so i ended up with another eight eggs and i put those in um i'm gonna say five or so days ago as of today Uh, And I think at least it's still early. Five days is still early to tell. Uh, But I think I have got at least six of those that are good. But the thing about geese eggs, well, it happens with chicken eggs too. any of them, is that sometimes they'll get all the way right up to hatching and then they just they just don't make it because it usually happens once they break into the air cell. It takes so much energy. And so if there's any birth defects or if your temperature is wrong or your humidity was wrong, they just are like, nope. So you're always going to have better success with eggs that are under a broody hen or a broody goose. And it just so happens that there was one egg that I hadn't had a chance to collect. I knew she'd laid it and she uh, she just never got off the nest again. I was like, okay, I guess she's just decided to sit. So I went and got two that I had inside and stuck them under her. And another goose laid that same morning. I stuck that under her. She's got four eggs that she's sitting on outside. And I've got uh, 13 that are in the incub- incubator. And I'm, I've am i made some mistakes. I, this is all uncharted territory for me. Because with waterfowl, you're supposed to take them out of the incubator for a little bit. Then you mist them with water to kind of get, simulate when the mom goes off and has a swim and comes back and sits on the eggs. And I did that, and I accidentally left them out of the incubator for six <laughs> hours because I forgot to put them back in. <laughs> and another time, because this is a scientific incubator, it's not—it's made for like lab labs. It's not made for hat for eggs. I—that's why I'm doing all the turning manually on them. There's not a turner in it. But it shuts itself off after a certain number of hours. And normally I'm pretty good about doing that myself, turning it off, turning it back on to make sure that it doesn't. But one time I forgot and it shut off for unknown number of hours. And then another time I had to make a day trip to take care of some, well, it was an overnight trip to take care of some family stuff. And it was going to mean that I was going to be away from the house for like, you know, 48 hours, give or take, because leave in the morning, stay overnight, come back the next night. And I couldn't just leave them. And so I took the whole, so whole set with me, <laughs> the incubator, the, I packed the eggs like so that they as, as unjostling as possible and and did my best to keep them as warm as possible. But still, you know, they they had to get moved in and out of the so it's just a mess this whole incubation process so since I have to take them out every day to turn them and to mist them and all that kind of stuff I'm candling them at the same time candlings the old in the old days they used to put like a candle at a box and have like a pinhole light and then you hold the egg up to that light and it's shines into the egg and you can see what's going on inside it that's how you tell if they're fertile that's how you tell if there's they're alive you can see movement and but nowadays you just do it with a flashlight and so I've been candling them and for the first I don't know 15 days or so there's like all this movement and I can exactly see what's going on and then all of a sudden the eggs start looking a little dark and the movement is very minimal. And I don't know what these are supposed to look like anymore. Like at day 21, if these were chicken eggs, they'd already be hatching. (laughs) And so I don't know what normal is. I don't know if the incubator is accurate in terms of temperature, because when you're dealing with hatching, you're talking about tenths of a degree that it can throw it off one way or the other. And If you look at any type of high grade thermometers, they're always going to say plus or minus 0.1 C or plus or minus 0.2 F. In other words, the thermometer itself could be wrong by that much just as a matter of course. And so I have multiple, uh, I guess you could say, like thermometers that are designed for this, but I don't get the same read off of any of them. And none of them, are the same as the incubator either. So I I know that when you're when you have an incubator, the air circulates, you're you're gonna get cold spots and hot spots. It's it just happens. But I'm so I'm just trying to average it out. But if the temperature is too cold too cold, not cold, cold, but like just cooler than it's supposed to be, the embryos are gonna develop slower. They might be fine. Just the, they're just going to take longer to hatch. But if it's a little too cold, then they might develop birth defects or not have the energy that they need to get out of the shell because they absorb the yolk. It it gets messy. And then if you go too hot, you just kill them. Right right. They're there. So I'm in this like ah, I don't know. Do I turn? I don't want to turn the temperature up, but I'm not trusting this. Just stress. And then there's the issue with humidity. Uh, Most incubators, you have to do that manually. Um, Some of them have setups where there's an external system, a humidifier that automatically pumps the humidity into it and keeps track and shuts off when it reaches your setting or whatever. But in this one and with many others, I'm doing it manually. And that's just like it's almost as much an art as it is in science where you've got water bowls and sponges and you control it based on surface area or whatever. And so they were telling, you know, the the stuff I was reading about these was saying, you know, you should keep your humidity somewhere between 50, around 55 percent, 60 percent. But I noticed that the air cells did not seem to be uh, growing as much as they should for the as far along into the incubation process as they are. And the thing with air cells is if the air cell is too large, it means there's not enough moisture inside the egg because the eggs lose moisture over time, and you increase the humidity to slow down how much moisture they're losing, and you lower the humidity to increase how much moisture they lose. And if the egg has lost too much moisture, the the chicks or the goslings will essentially just get stuck. They don't have the lubrication that they need to maneuver their way into the air cell or whatever. And if the air cell is too small... Then they run out of oxygen before they have a chance to pip through the shell. So I'm, and once they break through the shell, then they get oxygen from outside. It's like now their lungs are breathing outside air. So I'm looking at these air cells going, oh gosh, those don't look like they're as big as they should be. This could be a problem. So immediately I start lowering the, the humidity. But You can only do that so long because once you hit a certain number of days, you've got to raise it again in preparation for hopefully a hatch. So this is like complete unknown territory for me. I have no idea if I've done it right or not because just the smallest things can uh, affect how well the outcome is. You can get the chick or the gosling all the way up until time of hatch and then they just so I'm in that zone now. I think I'm on like day as of this recording on day like 24 and it can take anywhere from 28 to 35 days. Like it's really it's not like chicken eggs are just like 21 days. This <laughs> is like depends on the goose, it depends on the breed, whatever and I I I can't find anything that tells me this type of breed you're looking at this many days. So I just have to assume that by about day 29 I got to keep an eye on them and just I got to crank the humidity up you know in anticipation of that so it's just like ah anyway that is my (laughs) hatching story like hauling them across Texas with me and (laughs) I've spent so much time turning them and misting them and checking on them and candling them that I'm like have more heavily invested emotionally invested in these guys than anything I've ever done in terms of incubation so um it's yeah we're getting down to the wire we shall see
0: So our daughter-in-law has what I think is the classic Texas vehicle. It's just an old, beat-up pickup truck, probably 300,000 miles on it. And whenever we come to visit, we borrow that truck, and I love driving that truck, and I love taking it to places because you don't have to worry about parking too close to anybody or anything like that. So I'm picturing you in an old beat up pickup truck with 300,000 miles on it with like a blanket spread out on the back with the eggs (laughs) spread around in in the bed of the truck with another blanket on top of them (laughs) and they're bouncing around as you you hit potholes. I'm guessing that's not exactly the way it (laughs)
1: works. Considering how much I drive, I think I'd have to have a vehicle for 40 years to hit 300,000 miles, maybe longer. Um, but no, I just have a small crossover and, uh, and I had the eggs packaged in a, um, you know, all those boxes where they will like, sell peaches and nectarines where they mm-hmm. have those little inserts. And so I filled one of those with, um, the stuffing that, you know, you put in gift baskets. It looks like straw, but it's not straw. Mm-hmm. So on. I layered it. Yeah. Kind of like that Easter, Easter egg straw type stuff, but it just, you know, made out of paper. And so i uh, I layered that box with lots of uh, like clean cloth clean rags. and then, oops, I hit the microphone. I'm talking. I can't talk about moving my hands. <laughs> um, I, I layered the box with clean rags, then put down the the insert and then filled it with the Easter egg straw, and then put the eggs in and then layered more cloth on top of it for insulation and then and protection so that they wouldn't jostle wouldn't move. And then stuck that whole thing back in the incubator so that it would retain heat so that and hopefully not jostle around too much. And they they made it both trip both ways. They were okay. They were in their thing Uh, when I could see like little webbed feet pressing up against the the eggshell or a beak or whatever. You just catch these little moments of definition and they were still fine then. So fingers crossed.
0: All right, so uh, topic today, we don't really have a topic, but we're going to be, Taylor's going to be responding to some of these Twitter memes that we use when we're running out of material. So if you guys have material for us, please send it along. But in the meantime, we have some interesting things that other writers have posted on Twitter and Taylor's going to respond to them
1: come from the Twitter feed of Scott Myers, who is a screenwriter. And his Twitter handle is going to the story. And he shares quotes from other writers on writing. And sometimes when I'm reading those, I'm like, oh, my God, that's so good. Mostly because it's like, ah, just another way of saying what I've been saying. (laughs) And so I'll screenshot those. And so that's what we're working off of today. And we're going
0: to be starting uh, talking about scenes, because we have been talking about the scenes for the last couple of weeks. So I'm going to be curious to hear your take on these quotes, and and then we may also chat for a bit uh, uh, through the lens of what we've been talking about uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks with, with with regard to scenes. So the first one, the first quote was from Chuck Wendig, who, who said, whenever you encounter the urge to info dump, ask... What does the audience need to know? not what details you want the audience to have determine only what it is that's required to move forward. Everything else gets the knife
1: so I thought that quote was really it articulated very well the concept of how to pair through when you have so much material, you've done all this research you've you've got so much stuff to work with. Sometimes your head can get a little foggy and you you almost can lose your way on deciding what belongs, what doesn't belong. And sometimes that urge to pontificate or show off your knowledge can creep in. We've talked about that before too. And this is just such a succinct way of saying here's how you decide what to keep and what has to go. And it really does boil down to what does the reader need to know? That's your that's your lodestar right there. And all the other stuff, the, the fun stuff that you want to put in, if there's space for it, if it works, if it's not going to feel info dumpy, fine. But if it starts to turn into info dump, like you said, everything else gets the knife. It's what do they need to know.
0: And I have always thought of info dumping as those two or three pages that you read where there's just nothing that's advancing the story. And it, it, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that it's info dumping. But I can clearly remember some comments of yours on on my manuscript where there you might highlight a couple of sentences and say this feels info dumpy. And at the time I thought, how could it be an info dump if it's just two sentences? But when seen through the lens of of what Chuck's saying here and what you just said, that makes more sense.
1: It's true. Even a sentence or two that's a sentence or two too much about something that isn't necessary can come across as being info dumpy. And the thing about info dumps is not only are they boring to the reader, readers have a tendency to skip through them, they also bog down the pacing and they they're irritating because when you're reading you want to get to the point you don't want to take this long detour you don't want to be educated on something that doesn't have anything to do with what's happening right then and there so it it it's counterproductive in both ways you as the author spend a lot of time writing stuff that you don't need to spend that time on and you eat up your words on that. And then the reader doesn't even appreciate it anyway. So everything else gets the knife.
0: All right. So over the course of the last couple of weeks, we talked a lot about solving problem scenes and you put together this wonderful PDF that's up on the, uh, on the Patreon page right now that, that helps to kind of summarize everything that we talked about. But this next quote takes it a step Further down, I guess. You know, we're talking about scenes and every scene needs a purpose. That's sort of one of the tenets of the Hack the Craft process. But Kurt Vonnegut, Vonnegut says, every sentence must do one of two things. Reveal character or advance the action. When I first read that, I read it as every scene, but that's not what it says. It says every sentence must do those one of those yeah. two things.
1: Yes, and so... Uh, That's why I got really excited when I saw that, because it is so close to, some, like you said, the tenant of every scene must serve a purpose. And I think that the language he uses here in this quote, advance the action, is key because that takes us back to character and motion. That's really what what it is, is something is happening, your character is in motion, and it ties that to plot and conflict. So... It a lot, there's a lot behind that very simple sentence. But when you're deciding what can go, what can stay, or how to craft your paragraphs, this every sentence needs to be carrying its own water. Why is this here? Why am I relaying this information? What is urging me to put this in? And with me, and like every author is going to have their own strengths and weaknesses. And for me, my weakness is to over explain everything, especially when I am inside a character's head, a character who thinks very complexly, (laughs) Is not a word, but very complex thought like Monroe, who's analyzing stuff. And in the work that I'm working on now, where everything could mean multiple things at the same time and she's trying to figure out what is actually happening and find some groundwork, the tendency to get inside her head too much, over-explain her thought process, is very real. And it becomes a process of writing a lot and cutting it down, cutting it, cutting it down to its essence so that each sentence is actually carrying its own water and it's not just saying the same thing a different way or whatnot and that it doesn't bog down the action that's maybe sort of a different form of info dumping I haven't really thought of it that way before you're info dumping the character's thoughts instead of about what's going on uh, in the world or the story itself research and so it's the same principles apply as you know everything else gets the knife what does the character need to know and when and not when, what does the reader need to know um everything else gets the knife and then at that point every sentence is doing those one or two things it's revealing character or advancing the action
0: so this next meme i guess these are all memes Sort of... They're uh, quote, ex- quotes. Ex- okay. It expands on it a little bit. Expands on that. And, and we we go back out to from the distance of scenes now. And Scott Myers says, what is the point of this scene? If you can't answer this question, what the question is, what is the point of this scene? If you can't answer that question, figure out the scene's purpose or cut it. That seems harsh.
1: Well, w- first thing to remember is that this is... Uh, directed towards screenwriters. So it's a slightly different process when you're writing for the screen versus when you're writing a novel. But the underlying concept relies the same. Um, It is the same. I don't know what's wrong with my... I can't do words today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The underlying concept is the same. And that is, every scene must serve a purpose. And with the Hack the Craft principles, we know that that purpose has to fall either under... Plot, character, or conflict, and that if it's not driven by one of those three key elements, then it's not serving its purpose. That all these other things that you can do in the scene, world building, interesting stuff, history, all of that, as interesting as it is on its own, it's not enough to carry a scene. So he's basically saying the same thing. If you can't answer the question of what is the point of this scene, you need to figure that out or cut it. And I 100% wholeheartedly agree. I'm just giving you a little bit more detail and saying here are some clues to help you answer the point of the scene and that is plot, character, or conflict.
0: <laughs> All right. The, in the next one, we transition a, a little bit to story. And before we get to the quote, I want to mention a story that Taylor told on Facebook today. And so for people who follow the the Taylor's group on, on Facebook, you'll, you'll know exactly when we recorded this, but this was the story about her, her new cat and kitten. there's a kitten. Sorry. <laughs> kitten. So there's, there's the, the picture of, of the kitten. And then there's a little story. And I remember when I first started following you on social media thinking, wow, your posts are really long. And for for most of us, when we post something on social media, it's a sentence or two. But you tend to tell stories. You are a storyteller. And rather than just saying, the cat woke me up at four in the morning and she's a pain in the neck or he's a pain in the neck, you told a story. And that's what you tend to do with, with your posts. So with that as background, we have the quote from Sarah Waters. Writing students can be great at producing a single page of well-crafted prose. What they sometimes lack is the ability to take the reader on a journey with all the changes of terrain, speed, and mood that a long journey involves.
1: So this one is a little more difficult for me to speak to from personal experience because I think story has always been with me. (laughs) Uh, Very wordy storyteller. And it's just in my nature to turn things into stories, like Steve was saying. I remember when I first got published, a lot of to-do was made in the media, in writing circles, writing magazines, interview questions, over the fact that I had not just no creative writing chops at all, but, like, no education either, (laughs) not (laughs) formally anyway. And this real serious question, it, it seemed to almost stress some people out, and I suspect that the people it was stressing out were writers themselves, perhaps unpublished. How can this person just come out of nowhere with no writing experience. This is their first book. The first thing they've ever really finished writing and no no creative writing education, not, not even education and, and do this like almost as if they didn't believe that I had really was really the one who had written it. Like maybe I had a ghostwriter or a co-writer or whatever. I mean, I've read the information as the writing is not that good, but anyway, the, <laughs> That's that's what they were all sort of upset about, or it was a thing, right? And I remember at the time somebody who had a lot of experience, and I don't remember who it was, I don't remember in what uh, me- vehicle it was written, like what magazine, newspaper. I don't, I don't remember. But they said something to the effect of, "There are creative writing students who." go through, who have an MFA and who couldn't tell a story to get themselves out of a wet paper bag, something along those lines. And it was the first time my I became aware of this thing, that story was not the same as writing. And I think a lot of aspiring novelists forget this. Now, I don't think any of our listeners forget that because we hammer it home so, so frequently. But there is a whole, um, I think, industry slash part of the writing community, writing world that really focuses on sort of this literary turns of phrase. And it's all about the pretty writing, the beautiful prose. But it at the expense of story, and that's you—you—you—you you, you, you sense this frustration of these really strong writers going, "How can that crap—not necessarily my book, but just in general—get published, and I can't get my own work published?" And it's—I'm going to say probably just again—I—I I, I can't speak to this because I'm not, like, in that world heavily, but just the impressions that I've gotten is that it really boils down to story. Yes, they can craft these beautiful sentences, these beautiful paragraphs, these very introspective uh, segments that bring these characters to life, but the actual journey itself is lacking. There's no there there. There's no story to it. And so there's no audience. There's no market. And... Every time I see another writer who brings who highlights this point, I I, cop- I I want to share it because it story is that much of a big deal in creating fiction. You can be the most prolific beautiful prose writer in the world and it's not the same thing as story. And that's why I always tell people who say, "Oh, I I want to write this book. I have this idea, but I don't, I'm not a writer. And I'm like, nobody's born writing. I wasn't a writer when I started. It matters if you can see the story, if you can come up with a story, write the story, just tell yourself the story. And then once you've told yourself the story, try and write it a little better than it was. And once you've done that, try and write it a little better than it was. That's all that it is, but it's really focusing on the story. Okay, I'm getting off my soapbox now.
0: All right, and we are out of time for this week's episode, believe it or not. So we will pick this up again with the next quote in next week's episode. So uh, thank you, Taylor, for sharing your thoughts on these quotes, memes. And thank you to Scott Myers for collecting these.
1: Yep, and thank you guys for being here. And we're doing week's quote shows because we're out of content like steve said at the beginning so we really truly welcome your feedback your questions your suggestions and give us something to work with so that we don't have to take a hiatus (laughs) and then we'll be with you again next week